0: Next Chapter Podcasts.
1: Hi, I'm Michael Goodfriend. I'm the executive producer of In the Cards, and I have real royalty with me right now. (laughs) An extraordinary actor, Chuck Awuji, who gives us the voice of Professor Peter Towers. He has been in many, many films and television series. He is in the Marvel Universe. He has performed with extraordinary actors, both on stage and in film and on HBO Max. But most importantly, he gives us the voice of Professor Peter Towers. His name is Chuck Chukwudi Awuji. Woody, welcome to the bonus content series for In the Cards.
0: Thank you so much for having me. This is fun. Greetings it's- from London, by the way. You know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, what brings you to London? Why are you in London?
0: Oh, I'm uh, I'm here with um, spending some time with my family and also working on a project, which I have to be kind of secretive about and stuff. Um, mm. uh, that's filming in uh, London, uh, Budapest and Croatia. So it's a long, uh, I don't know whether I need to be secretive. Yeah, I think I do. You know, you- all these NDAs. Very, very different from our podcast, basically. yes, so, I, I should yeah. say
1: I should say so. I feel like I have to be very, <laughs> you know, I have to get very prim and proper to to do this interview because <laughs> uh, you know you you work in such such high, high levels. um, and uh, you have, I say your royalty because you got your start as an actor at a royal place, the Royal Shakespeare Company in yeah. England. Can you tell yes. us how you how you got there?
0: It was always a dream because for me a lot of the actors I admired had come through the RSC as we call it. You know, whether it was going back to Peter O'Toole, Richard Burton, Judy Dench, you know, Maggie Smith, you know, they'd all come through, all my heroes of acting. So when I was studying in the States in drama school, I mean the conversation we would have, of we would watch those videos of uh speaking Shakespeare and stuff, led by John Barton or Cicely Berry, those videos we would study with, was that one day, you know, just like Patrick Stewart and Ian McKellen on those videos, uh, I'm going to join the RSC, even if it takes 10 years knocking on their door. As it happened for me, I moved back to London, and my first edition a week later was with the Royal Shakespeare Company, and I got in, and it was it was wonderful because I, I you know, playing spear carry roles, tiny roles, the suits and um, Julius Caesar, um, one of the ambassadors in Hamlet, the one that doesn't speak much. But I did get a chance to to understudy um, some major roles and watch from the wings. And and I did get to work with legends like the late, great John Barton and uh, Cicely Berry, who were my voice teachers and text coaches and stuff. On a daily basis, I took full advantage of that sort of academic side of, 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 of working at the Royal Shakespeare Company. So that was my first uh, professional job in England when I moved back and they became a real home to me because I went back a few years later to play Ophidius in Coriolanus and Fenton in Merry Wives of Windsor. Then the really huge one was the the recently deceased Sir Michael Boyd, who was a dear friend as well as being a collaborator, um, hired me to play Henry VI in the History Cycle, which was a huge, just a huge coup for the RSC and and really was... um, I'd say it was a big, big stepping stone in my career to do that.
1: You say you went back to England mm-hmm. to join the RSC. Where had you been before then?
0: I studied undergrad at uh, Yale University. So I did economics there of all things. And while I was there, I uh, did a couple of plays. And, you know, one of the plays I did, the head of undergrad drama at Yale saw me it was a production of uh beckett you know and i was playing beckett and um he offered me a uh a, a full scholarship to the uh university of uh wisconsin milwaukee conservatory the professional theater training program in um in milwaukee he offered me a scholarship because he was about to become artistic director of the program and i studied there for three years and um you know, worked in the area while I was studying. I was very lucky to get a lot of professional experience while I was in those three years. And one of which was with the American Players Theater in Spring Green, Wisconsin, which is huge. I mean, they they really nurtured me also. Before the RSC, I would say my nurturing with classics came working with those guys, the Jimmy DeBetas and Jonathan Smoots and, you know, just, you know, just amazing performers out there and then my i have to
1: interject here because my wife is there right now doing a one-woman show at american Players. oh my god so brandon at the time
0: apt people oh my god i i would spring green it was such a big coup for my drama school because every actor in my drama school was hoping they would come and take them there after they graduated to get the experience i was lucky enough after my they came to uh david frank who was the artistic director at the time, David, he came to do, he would always come do workshops and work with the students. And it was my second year and he came to do a workshop and liked what I did. And that summer after my second year, they hired me, which was a real coup because that never happened. And they hired me to, and I believe I did, Albany and King and Don Pedro in What to Do About Nothing and then the wow. summer after i graduated i went back and played florizel in the winter's tale and um hippolytus in fedra back when i was a leading man um so like, i have to tell
1: my parents you know? because they go to see all of apt's plays you know i grew up 6 miles from that theater that's where wow. i got i wow. got my start in this in this whole uh, you cool. know world so crazy I'm world. sure they saw you I'm sure they saw you
0: oh yeah yeah it was the crazy time such great talent and and you know um um everyone just like was so good and I remember learning a lot from them and they cared about the classics they really and you know how actors would they formed that was my first full experience of a company a mm. company of actors that knew each other that grew with each other and shared the roles and had their moments of shining and their moments of being ensemble and still, you know, giving everything that mm-hmm. they, 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 they could with it, you know,
1: I'm curious to know. So you worked at American players theater, which is, a, a, mm-hmm. a, as you say, just a great repertory theater company that's in the middle yeah. of uh the, the country nowhere in Wisconsin right yeah people drive from all there's literally nothing around there I mean well there is there's yeah. incredible natural beauty but the beauty and the
0: shed the shed oh, remember the shed now, oh did, now defunct
1: drinks. I hate to tell you this but yeah, I know it broke there. my
0: heart I lived above the shed had oh my God so I lived above the shed and there was such a The idea that the shed doesn't exist where we could all congregate like we just did. It's a bit like the Dirty Duck in Stratford-upon-Avon. This one place that's traditionally belongs to the um, actors. Martino's
1: at uh, Oregon Shakespeare Festival was Martino's. There is another place now called the Slowpoke that Michael Bro started. Michael Bro, one of the... um uh, That works at APT all the time. And and so that's the new hangout. That's where everybody... All right, okay.
0: (laughs) To be fair, the shed always looked like it was on the edge of something not quite right
1: (laughs) (laughs) well i'm really really going deep here i i actually as a a graduate of river valley high school in spring green i can tell you that the shed really was on the edge of on the edge (laughs) propriety (laughs) on the edge
0: of propriety yes (laughs) i mean we're
1: talking uh you know this this is this is uh this is rural, rural wisconsin Hmm. but but Mm I remember hearing Derek Jacobi, the, an RSC great, talking about you know how what that that American actors should go to the regions and should go work at places like American Players Theater to learn about working in rep. And this is of course back mm-hmm. when we had a real regional theater. Now, sadly, they're all sort of starting to 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 fade, and and mm-hmm. APT is one of few now. But I'm curious to know what it was like for you having gone. You know, really cut your teeth at APT and then going to the RSC. Were there a lot of similarities? What are the differences and the similarities between repertory companies like uh, APT and RSC?
0: Well, you know, I'm going to might surprise you here to say not much, not much mm. difference. I think, in fact, I'm deeply grateful for, I mean, APT, is, if, especially for people that don't know it, at least when I was there, the standard of theater was a classical speaking text and embracing text was just like nowhere else I would say in the country. It was of another level. And it was a real gem. And that's why people traveled from Chicago, from all over to come there and work there. So I would say that APT is a big reason why I was able to make that transition into the RSC. I remember the late great Stephen Pimlot, the first director that I I had a meeting with at the RSC that fateful week when I arrived back in London. Just saying to me, I just love the way you, the muscularity of how you're using the language. And that was the combination. And that that was the combination of sort of mid Atlantic, you know, how Americans chew their words more, whereas we, the Brits, are sort of more trippingly on the tongue. So there was a weird combination of both, which I sort of developed at APT the, 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 the attention to text, you know. So I would say that it wasn't that different. I mean, the difference was that suddenly those legends of the game were suddenly in the rehearsal rooms with me and stuff like that. And we know that suddenly, you know, the the badge is more internationally known. And I did get to work with, like I said, Cicely Berry and John Barton and then the directors that were there, like Stephen Pimlet and Edward Hall and, and so forth and later Sir Michael Boyd. But really, I'm happy to say that APT was a big part. I think without APT, I'm not sure I would have got into the RSC so quickly. I think it really prepped me. I wasn't wasn't intimidated beyond this was the place of my dreams, which everyone has. I wasn't intimidated technically to start the process because drama school doesn't make you an actor. It just gives you the tools to become an actor. So I felt that those seasons I'd had with APT really prepared me to speak text so that at the RSC, those auditions, whether they took me or not, I wasn't intimidated by the text or my delivery and stuff because I had studied all that, you know? So, um, but what the Brits in general, if I were to say a big difference with the theater then and here's the fact that, and that's why Derek Jacoby was saying what he was saying is that we have a culture of apprenticeship with places like the RSC, the National, the Crucible, the you know the playhouses and stuff like that of where actors coming out of drama school can go and learn their trade for a period of time joining these company, these theater companies that a lot of American actors when you're done with drama school you're sort of thrown out into the wind. You know what I mean? There isn't places where you can go and disappear in your 20s and come out in your 30s seasoned and haven't been guaranteed season after season and work after work and growing with the roles. You're sort of thrust into... The same stage as people that have been doing it for 10, 20 years ahead of you, that are whatever, you're, you're competing in that sense, you know, as opposed to somewhere where you're going like I did with the RSC. It's like, okay, I'm just starting off. I'll play Cornelius, the ambassador. I'll play whatever, but I'll watch the guys that I want to emulate. Yeah. I'll watch, you know, Sam West doing his Hamlet and dream on my Hamlet. I'll take advantage of. The sessions with John Barton and Susan Barry, so that when I go on for that understudy run, I'm ready to do Anthony, Anthony and and that's what the RSC noticed. They noticed that when I did that, and that's why they called me back to do, a, you know, uh, ophidius and why I was in the reckoning for Henry the By the way, you know?
1: Ophidius so, a great, you know? great, great role in Coriolanus, brilliant role. The, I mean, brilliant I think, role, frankly, the best role. I mean,
0: it's it's for me. I, I I mean, I, I'll disagree with you because I love Coriolanus, but I would completely accept the argument that Ophidius could technically be the better role in his extreme complexity how he turns on that you know but I I was I would say that's the big difference is that we have these establishments not so much now as far as funding was but at the time I came out where there was plenty of funding to develop as an actor to develop as a performer to learn your craft without the pressure of west end or broadway do you know what i mean you yeah. you would you know and and get better whereas american actors are sort of thrust into the wind as soon as they graduate and yeah they're competing for 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 roles that are going to movie stars or people that have been on broadway for ages the best you can hope for is to be a swing or an understudy or for someone to be specifically looking for someone really young for the role maybe if you're lucky and we had these meccas to disappear to and just train and get better you know
1: mm-hmm. um
0: so that's a big difference I, you know
1: here here i want to take us back on a on a, on a, on a thread of esoterica <laughs> if you don't mind mm. the apt uh, journey um you did john wick too yes, yes. um yes. there's there's an actor who's part of the john wick series uh named randall duck kim did you oh ra- do- of course john- Is Randall part of John Wick? I thought Randall was part of the. um, Well, he was in the Matrix. He's in the Matrix. Matrix, yeah. And I think I don't. I'm. I know he's. He's. I didn't work
0: with Randall. I didn't. He was. Randall was a legend when I joined APT. I didn't work with him. He had left APT by the time I joined. I literally missed him. But people like Lee Ernst and, oh, yeah. and all that had all been students of Randall. Well, I don't know if students are the right word, but influenced by Randall. Yes. yes. And APT is very much Randall's uh, baby in its development. So I missed Randall, but I would hear so many stories about his performances, his layer, his this, his this, his that, you know, um, but I never got to work with him. But yes, he is part of the Matrix world. And I guess he is part of the. I, I just didn't. Honestly, I just was wondering if, if when you were
1: when you were on the set of, of John Wick, if you guys crossed paths and and you could make that connection. But um, no, yeah, no, never did. I, I would be remiss to say, uh, listeners, that uh, uh, my wife, who's working at APT, is Nancy Rodriguez, and she plays Monica in our series. She is the Cheese Curl Girl. Uh, so connecting that thread. And speaking of threads. One of our wandering threads uh, from In the Cards, the man without whom we couldn't have done this series, Kevin Henderson, has just joined us. He is the writer and director (laughs) of In the Cards, and uh, I woke him up a a bit late,
2: but hello, seven (laughs) thirty. Some fatherly duties got in the way and took a little bit more time this morning than I had anticipated. So I do fatherly duties. What you 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 can't
1: pull one over on us, Kevin. I know I woke you up
2: out of bed. i
1: know no. i know
0: a hangover when i see one i see a few tequila no. sunrises when i see one
1: Chuck Woody, he no. always looks like this this is just how kevin looks this looks good for me
0: you look great you look great you look very tanned you look a lot more tanned than i last saw you kevin
2: well you've been away i was playing a lot of soccer yesterday so uh oh, I the amazing. In and i scored so that's good excellent so good. It's, Kevin,
1: you're interrupting uh, uh, Chuck Woody's brilliant biography here. We're, we're just—I <laughs> was catching
2: most of it. It was, <laughs> but continue. <laughs> uh, so,
1: okay, uh, Chuck Woody, you're there. You're in London. Uh, you're you're mm. performing at the RSC. Suddenly, you're playing Ophidius an enviable, great role in uh, on mm. the RSC stage. When do you start doing uh, film work?
0: I was desperate to try film work because I'm going to be honest. The whole Shakespeare and theater thing was um, almost accidental when i when I chose to become an actor finally, after having toyed with it as a kid and done some acting, when I got to in fact, the whole reason I was in America guys was because I suspected I wanted to be an actor. And That's the awesome. thing is that in England in England, uh, the educational system starts narrowing down your choices very early you know you know GCSEs then A level and you go to university to study law or medicine and stuff you don't have the liberal arts thing or the undergrad thing in that sense where you can you have at least two years to decide what you want to do and then you start focusing and then go to grad school like if i was going to do um like i thought i was going to do inter- you know sort of something like uh, commercial law international law or something I would have gone to university with that as my major, but I knew I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. And I suspected there was a side that might want to be an actor. So of course you go, I need to get to America. That's the home of Dirty Harry and Star Wars and all those things I watched. And even Richard Burton, when I think of the movie of Beckett, that was a big influence in me. I should remind me to come back to that. It's an amazing story. It really is. so I, I said to my dad, dad, I think I need a bit more time. I'd love to entertain the idea of going to America and figuring out what I want to do. And my dad had a bet with me. He said, OK, well, you know, I want you ideally you'd go to one of the universities here, you know, Oxbridge, one of those two, Oxford or Cambridge or something like that. Um, but if you're going to go to America, the only way I'll let you go to America is if you get into an Ivy League. Okay. Wow. and i got in i got it i got in. i got into yale and it was the single most expensive bet of his life
1: he's not a betting man but he
0: i can tell you he never bet again after that if he had ever
1: wait oxbridge uh, so would have been yale. more expensive wouldn't it no not Oxford for it was, you didn't oh, really? pay it you didn't, you didn't pay anything
0: you didn't what? at the time now you have to pay the minimal fee compared to american there as a british citizen you would have gone to that free
1: Wait, Kevin yeah, and I went to Yale free. and we didn't get to go for free. Let me tell you. No,
0: no. That's what's crazy. That's <laughs> what's crazy. It, you know, it's not that that doesn't exist in America. But yes, universities until very recently um, in the UK were all free for citizens and stuff. You know, now there's a you pay. But compared to what we pay in the States is an absolute fraction, tiny fraction of that. You know, so at the time I would have been able to go to Oxford or Cambridge um, free of charge. So you, you know? went. So to he Yale, was like, "If you're gonna,"
1: mm-hmm. and, and you 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 went into Yale in economics to become an actor in London.
0: I didn't know for sure I would become an actor. What I did know is that I wasn't ready to commit to saying the next three years of my life I'm going to study law or I'm going to study this. I did know that I would have two years to maybe try a couple of plays, maybe try some, do my economics course, do my whatever, and just figure it out. I just needed time. And if it was gonna end up being acting, well, better to be in America with that this big machine of acting, you know, that exists rather rather than the UK. As it happens, I could have just as easily gone to Cambridge or something and joined the Cambridge players or something. I don't know. But for me, I needed time. I needed time and America made sense. And I'm I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad I got to Jedi mind my the mind trick my dad into agreeing to that bet, you know. <laughs> so yeah.
1: so uh you 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 start doing film. Uh, mm-hmm. What was what was your first? Well,
0: film was, was very, so yeah, to go back to how I started this is, so while at Yale like, I got into theater, you know, they do the plays and stuff. Then you go to drama school and they train you classically. There wasn't really any sort of training for camera acting in my drama school at all. At all. And it turns out that I have an affinity for classical work, certainly Shakespeare, and I enjoy it. And the American Players Theater am hire me and I'm doing more Shakespeare. Then I go to London and, my first gig is with the RSC and then they know you for then I go to the national and work with Sir Peter Hall and I do the back guy there and then the RSC bring me back for Phidias and then I go back for it's all classical work. Then I found myself in theater and you know, great directors like Sir Richard Eyre and stuff offer me. You know, you're 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 in theater. I'm looking at the time for film and TV, but at the time, guys the world of streaming has changed the landscape of, of television and film so drastically. And suddenly the world of opening it up to people with my skin tone has really changed in the last, you know, 10, 11 years, because I know that the reason I moved to America again, having come back to England and I moved to America in 2012, November, back to New York, I was doing a production of Richard III that Sam Mendes had directed and we toured around the world with, and, uh, We, our last stop was New York and it was hugely successful. I was playing Buckingham. And uh, I remember having a conversation with my agent at the time saying, I think it's time, it's time. If I'm gonna get, if I'm ever gonna do film or TV I need to get out of this theater comfort zone Mm because there's a ceiling. I can see the ceiling. I'm one of the lucky ones. I'm one of the fortunate ones, really am in that culture but I can see this ceiling. And I'm not being honest to myself that this is all I want as an actor. I know that if to, be, to feel fulfilled, I have to have a go at doing film and TV because my, my heroes, whether it's Gary Oldman or Desmond or Washington or Viola Davis, I'm seeing yeah. them in movies and on TV. You know, um, I have to give it a shot. So on the back of Richard III, I got my manager here in the States and stuff and moved over. And she said to me, Meg, Meg Mortimer, she's amazing. She's yeah. still my manager now. She said to me, I will rep you but you have to move here. None of this, at the time, what Brits would do, they'd move to LA for like three months and hope they score a pilot or something right, like that. It was like right, none right. of that You're either moving here and doing it, or you we're not doing it. And I moved on an A1 visa, which meant that the only way I could eat was to act. You know? Huh. And I left the comfort zone of So, uh, I'm sorry to
1: interrupt, but an A1 visa, meaning you couldn't work in any other field?
0: other field but as an actor it's called an an artist it's not a one oh one not a one sorry oh no, no waiting tables oh one visa.
1: am so no sorry. waiting
0: tables so no temping no waiting tables uh and it's 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 i had to succeed as an actor basically to to make it work and it was a very scary time because you know initially i was living off savings and uh not really knowing if i could I was competing with people who had been doing the TV and film thing a lot longer, a lot better than I had. (laughs) Does that make sense? I was hoping at some point it would click that it would make sense. So I came and I came into theater in New York. You know, the public theater was my, took over from the national and RSC for me in the States. It became my spiritual home. I, I, I I did a production of Anthony and Cleopatra did it in the then Oscar Eustace said, I'm going to invest in you as an actor and they brought me back and I played Edgar and Leah with John Lithgow and Annette Benning. and then they brought oh, wow. me, you know, I've, I've worked there. So, you know, that was within the first, and that really introduced me to the New York theater scene and that's when I worked at the um, Theater for New Audience, came back to the public and I did a Hamlet there. And the last play I've done recently is Othello in the park. So I really had to move to be honest with myself because there just weren't enough roles for people of color. What few were coming through that were quality, I had to wait for Chiwetel Ejio, for David Oyelowo, Idris Elba, and everyone to say no before I had a shot at it. Right. <laughs> you know, if you got a shot at it, it was a time when most of the stuff was being cast in the states, unless you were a big name and they came for you. So, like, unless you were in the states, you were missing out on most things. And streaming hadn't started yet, so there wasn't the volume. If I'm in the position I was in 2012 today, I probably wouldn't move to the states. I wouldn't have to because casting is done internationally, and there's more roles for people like me everywhere. You know, it's all on tape now,
1: right? You don't, and
0: it's all on tape. It's all on tape, and also there's just more roles. There's more. You see every project. There's a determined, I mean, we're far from being on an even playing field. Let's not pretend we're there yet. But it's moving in the right direction. At the time, it was absolutely necessary that I move over to the States if I wanted this and that I give it a shot in the States. So that's how I that's how that was how I started doing film. And it took a while. It really, I got the odd guest star thing here and there. I was able to get that. But it really wasn't until I would say roughly around 2018 that I can comfortably say that. I had made enough headroads into my ability as an actor on camera and film and made enough uh, a good enough impression with the casting people in camera and film to actually start thinking that I could have a career in film and TV and not predominantly just theater.
1: You've kind of broken through now. You're, you're, you're well known. Um, mm-hmm. Was it the Marvel? Uh, was that what changed things for you?
0: Absolutely, Marvel was a. I'd say what really changed things for me is James Gunn. I mean, so because he, he hired me in Peacemaker before Marvel, okay. which was like had its you know exposure, and it was out of Peacemaker while I was working with him that he then hired me for Guardians. But yes, if you're, I guess if you were to divide my life into two parts, there's before James Gunn and after James Gunn. You know, so I would say Marvel is Marvel is as we know. I'm not saying anything new here is a big game changer in people's lives and especially playing a villain in Marvel where whereas they might go for a relative unknown for to be the new Spider-Man or the new this when they're looking for a fresh new face to do this usually the villains are the established actors the William Hertz and the you know what I mean and stuff that they they bring in to, to you know to to bring that to it so I feel very lucky that James despite having the option of doing that chose to get me still at the time a relative unknown to play a role like that and that has been very much a game changer you know porn satan drugs therapy it's not just the list of what i'm up to this weekend i'm comedian kiki anderson and those are just a handful of the taboo topics i've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast indecent the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable
1: behavior. And Decent with Kiki Anderson,
0: where NSFW meets LMAO.
1: Okay, uh, London, and then uh, Yale, and (laughs) then milwaukee and american players theater the rsc uh television well well film and streaming stuff and finally you're ready to do podcasts (laughs) which is where kevin henderson comes in with this brilliant script for in the cards Mm. you know we had to put you through your paces i know we auditioned you we called you back How, was, oh, was I mean, how many nine? callbacks
2: did we do, Michael? We did how many? I think it was six. Six callbacks.
1: <laughs> you know, just you didn't quite have the voice. We didn't have the accent. You know, it's no. Look, we were flattered, honored, floored. We, we, you know, our our casting director Karen Castle was like, "What about Chuck Woody? Woody? We're like, "Sure, you know, Hail Mary, maybe. You never know. <laughs> Stranger things have happened." And, and that, you know, I, that boggles
0: my mind. You know, the, the I'm going to be completely honest with you that I, I don't know if I'll ever, I think I spoke to Kevin about this when we were doing this. And I was like, in my head, I'm a working actor, a jobbing actor. If you've done it long enough, especially in the UK, going from theater to theater, you're not going to suddenly forget you're a jobbing actor. You know what I mean? So the idea that <laughs> there's a conversation somewhere where someone says, yeah, Hail Mary to get it, it boggles my mind <laughs> because... I'm like, oh, of course, if it's good shit, I'd be very interested in doing it. Does that make sense? So it's very flattering to hear that. But honestly, to answer your question is I read it. I was like, oh, this is hilarious. Do you know what I mean? And I was like, this is very funny, you know, and I didn't in any way. I just think that podcasts have a very special it draws everyone in, doesn't it? You know it's sort of like every you could anyone can pop up in a podcast doing it. There's such an ownership when it's this voice coming out of a recording and stuff like that, so it doesn't quite have the whole thing. Well, if it isn't a surely you don't do a movies that are less than a hundred million dollar budget it doesn't have that quality in podcast you know what i mean it's it's very much about the project that was, that was the story you want to, to, to budget, tell you know, you know yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. I, was, I know it was close we sort of talk you brought it just under right i know you brought it just under <laughs> but um i i just feel that in general when i saw when the material came to i just thought oh this is very funny I, I really think in terms of character i really do i really think when i i find a character that either I haven't done anything like it or i i'm certain i will have fun playing it really moves up the food chain very quickly as far as decision making and the writing in this was very funny very odd very quirky and a lot of the stuff i've done recording wise whether it's radio plays or books audio books have tended to be quite serious you know kind of like deep you know genocide and also mm-hmm. amazing books but just kind of depressing i was like this would be great to just have a lot of fun doing something like this. So I'm really glad that your casting director suggested me and that you you took that Hail Mary. You know,
2: most of the people who we had uh, come to the party, party. Uh, we knew. You know, and ones mm-hmm. that we didn't know, I said to Michael, and then and then Michael shared this with casting director. You know, people who would want to play, and to me mm-hmm. that. Means- that means it means people who come from the stage because uh yeah uh you're not going to want to do a project like this because of all the money that we're paying you which (laughs) (laughs) it's going to be whether you think it's going to be fun and the other Mm -hmm. thing was that i this this role that you were doing the the language is actually kind of complicated it's um do you know
0: what i was I was listening to episode five again, you know, and you know. Oh God, I love that episode. You know. five. Um, oh my God, I was listening to that, and I was just like, you know, it was it modes of possibility, and we were talking about, you know, the the whole. And I was like, how did I get this out of my mouth? Because I, I was like, I was like listening to stuff. I was like, I was like, I'm sitting here having a slight sort of delayed appear, you know. A post like breakdown going, if I was looking at this, I would be freaking out. How did I get this out of my mouth? And it kind of
2: worked, you know
0: what I mean? I was like, wow. It worked so
2: well because those thoughts are very complicated and the sentences Mm -hmm. are very long and the Mm -hmm. the sense of the whole paragraphs that you were saying had to be so facile. And Mm -hmm.
1: uh, you'd have to be a Shakespearean actor to do what Towers does. (laughs)
0: <laughs> ah, ah yes um well i guess it helps you you know what it's 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 not even a deliberate thing it's not like i sit there and go mm, let me let me turn on the shakespeare um sort of like like uh sensibilities and things like that it's just that i guess when you've done enough where well, you're looking at language and you're trying to make sense of internal rhythms and how to hit what you hit to make sense you know it's that's what i had to do with towers because you're right um you know there was so much uh, language with him because there was a wonderful, fl- that's what I loved about it. There was a wonderful flamboyance about him, and there was a real brain. And one of the things we love about Shakespearean characters is how even the dumb characters are witty. You know, they've got wit and they've got <laughs> quickness of, they've got quickness of thought. They've got whatever that we like about them, even when they're completely wrong and mis- mishearing or interpreting stuff. They think they're being quick, you know. So mm-hmm. Towers was this wonderful guy that just was ready to bounce on stuff and and use the language and you know you gave me the note that he's flamboyant and also I think you gave the note of he's a charismatic teacher and when I think of the teachers that I had that I really latched on to were the ones that saw teaching as a bit of a performance you know
1: So, are you a fan of podcasts have you listened to a lot of them
0: I haven't listened to as many does that make sense in fact you guys are making me lean into it my family really are I sort of like I need to trust it fully in the sense that i just love a good read do you know what i mean i'm someone who looks at page like i i my my family all not just podcasts but they listen to books on you know audiobooks and stuff even i've done audiobooks i like a good read so for some reason i've always extended uh, audiobooks to podcasts and stuff as you know that oh that's what my family love that stuff i keep being told about podcasts but i I'd rather just read, but it's a completely different world because it's its own sort of style of acting. Does that make sense? In fact, it's, I've learned a lot listening to our episodes. I'm going, oh my God, it's like a whole, like when I do an audiobook, there aren't the soundscapes you guys create or the, the soundtracks you guys create or the, the French music, you know, things like how you have a French music that takes us off somewhere. It's a whole different world. So I will say that, and it's not just... Yeah, it is. Predominantly for this, like learning that, oh God, there's a whole other world of this kind of podcast, you know. I listen to some, you know, historical podcasts about stuff, you know, and all that stuff every now and then. But honestly, I always chase the written word over the listened word for me in a weird way. But this is a game changer because I was like, wait, I never imagined that this is how it was going to sound when we were recording it. That That's is right. what it takes I am on a curious. whole different world. That is my know?
2: biggest... That's my biggest curiosity to the actors is, is what did you imagine and, and how how is that different? All I, no. all I could hear was my
0: voice, was me and my voice that I'm slightly bored about having lived on this earth with it my whole life and hearing the other interactions. And then you would say, obviously, when we're recording, we're going to have a bit of, you know, we're going to throw something in here. We're going to throw some music in here. We're going to, and I don't know what that's going to be. Do you know what I mean? Then suddenly you have these episodes where like, you're talking and, 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 and something is underscoring and growing a sound that just throws you, you know, throws it. And then it it comes to life and it becomes a lot more visual or, and also it affects you sentimentally. Like, you know, there are times when Gil is talking to Nadia and, you know, Connor had, which you, I remember you pushing him to just like, you know, don't, don't play at being a loser. Just, you're, you're going along, and these things, these things just keep happening to you. Does that make sense? And there's a simplicity to Connor's delivery, which I love. And then the French music will be playing, and then Nadia is the one that's animated because of him. And there's a wonderful, and it helps to the sort of almost stoic acceptance until he changes his, you know, of, and then you feel something extra for this guy in the sense that oh yeah, it's it's all right, but you know they they got the stain off. It was a bad place for the stain, but they got it. You know, as opposed to commenting on. That's so sad, you know? And there's something about when the music is playing underneath it. And it's like when you watch a movie, you know, Dances with Wolves wouldn't be Dances with Wolves without that score. You know, with the Buffalo Run. The last of the Mohicans, the the whole last sequence where they're running up the hill and the music just playing, wouldn't be that without that score. And I think that's the equivalent of what's happening as I'm listening to this, because you're putting in this whole other character, which is the world that... I was trying to imagine, but of course, I could never imagine till I hear it. That's what it is. And it, it sort of is a, it fills in the little synapses, the little right. awkward ways, the awkward moments I feel as an actor, I'm trying to get to beat to beat and it's just with my voice. And then suddenly you have this other stuff and you go, oh, it's a bit like when you're filming and they assure you, the director shows you, no, I've got it. I've got what I want. I know you might not feel you've nailed the whole, but I've got, I caught what I want. And then they right. put it in the edit and they put it in and they catch it. Does that make sense? This is the equivalent of it, you know? Yeah.
1: Are you able to watch yourself on film?
0: I'm better at it than I was because mainly because I just wasn't very good initially when I started <laughs> the film and I could see, I could see myself overacting. I could, I could see myself overthinking overacting, but I then, even though it could fool some people that didn't know me or, or are easily we have a culture in film and TV I think in general, that we're easily pleased actually. You know, we're easily impressed. We, we don't demand, I don't think we demand as much from our performers on screen as we demand, say when you go to a live play, you know, the, the demands of it. I, I think there's a sense of, oh, they, they, they look the part, they've delivered the part like we expect them to deliver it because that's how, you know, this procedural has always been, we're not looking for much more. Does that make sense? And I think I was able to get away with certain things because I, I I I didn't I didn't make a disaster of it. But when I was watching it, I didn't see myself being particularly believable. So I struggled initially. Then I, I've as I've become more comfortable with it, as I've been willing to take more risks with it, sort of thought of it in the same way I think of theatre when I'm performing, I've been able to watch myself more because I can now at least assess what i'm doing even when i feel i overdid that bit i can i can see the modulations and a lot more ease and i can almost fall back and watch the story and not worry about the next time i come on does that make sense i'm getting better at it
1: yeah theater demands all of this physicality film you're saying is much more subtle less Mm. where does podcast fall in
0: it 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 dem- it's, it doesn't it demands a specificity in your vocal range and your thinking that's exhausting um in a in a perfectly good demanding way i feel it it doesn't whereas in, i can see the natural progression with um theatre and tv and back the sort of the circular connection between the two of them they're sort of related i think acting predominantly with your voice which I've experienced when doing audiobooks and stuff is a completely different very exhausting demanding challenge mentally also the first thing that's mentally challenging about it is reading every word accurately when I read I didn't realize how much of a skimmer I am when I read we read we know what the sentence is probably gonna say and we're 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 throwing words in there every now and then. Do you know what I mean? That's how we get through it, but you can't do that. You know, Kevin's written that word. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's alliteration, it's, it's rhythmic, it's, 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 it's a kind of humor. It belongs to Philadelphia. You know, little things like that that like you can't, the specificity alone of reading every word correctly. With audio, this is at least my experience, is how do I let them know If they were watching me, that's what I would be doing. (laughs) Do I mean one way is to actually do the action, but sometimes that isn't enough. Sometimes you have to just—it's hard to explain. You have to find—you have to almost listen to yourself and sort of observe yourself and then deliver it. You know, Mm -hmm. if 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 you know when Kevin would say no, he's 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 angrier. You know, in one of my tirades with um Gill. If I'm angry on stage or on camera, I know the camera is going to come in and catch it in my eyes. Or if I'm on stage, I know how I can use pure like anger and vocal stick on the, on the, with the mic there and stuff. How do I, how do I think I'm angry? I have to think, I have to find other layers in that it's like, oh, like condescending this little piece of whatever and put that all before I speak. Does that make sense? So I find it deeply, deeply challenging and mentally exhausting because in a good way, because I have to find a way to express that for the ear alone and sort of like stimulate a visual imagination from the way they hear it. Whereas when I'm performing on film or TV, you have the bonus of seeing me do it. So I stimulate you physically. Also, I have to, there's one more phase to go through with audio stuff. That is a real wonderful challenge and I'm hoping will feed into my, uh, other acting also of knowing how you can, you know, you can do that all without maybe even moving, you know, does that make yeah. sense? What I just said.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. We have a, you know, with the play on uh, Shakespeare stuff, we always uh, tell our cast twirl the mustache that, that sort of like, <laughs> you know, when you've got that, the, the sort of the super villain, you know, that, that sort of curses foiled again, uh mm-hmm. you know, uh, that, that, that sort of, Really, being on the nose in the performance with what's happening emotionally vocally, yeah, which we don't do for film definitely in in theater, no, sometimes.
0: we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't we don't because we have so much other things to rely on for it that it's slightly to trust that you know the biggest fear was, am I playing? a stereotype of the character. Am I being stereotypical charismatic professor? Am I actually, is this this real? Does that make sense? Because you have to find a way of sounding that way in a way that you don't in other um, mediums.
1: I have another question for you. Um, You said you got to dream your Hamlet when you were working Mm. at RSC. Have you gotten to play Hamlet?
0: I did. I played Hamlet at the public. It started with the mobile unit. We went to you know, prisons and community centers and the most extraordinary experiences doing Hamlet. I I remember I was in Rikers, on Rikers, you know, Rikers prison one day and doing about to to, uh, um, to be or not to be. And I was about to sort of shoot myself in the arm with some heroin and overdose or something. And I remember saying to be or not to be and looking up at the front row, there was a guy sat there, you know, and he just looked at me and shook his head and mouthed, don't do it. Don't do it. It's not what that sort of connection with people. That I was in a women's homeless shelter and I started to be or not to be. And this homeless woman with all her bags near her teeth went, that is the question. And she did the speech with me. Oh. Um, and uh, that play, everyone's, it's, it's touched people's lives somehow. And to know that I, we didn't have to make it any easier, you know, clarify it, make it you know simplify the text you could go with the complication of the text but living in the idea the thoughts the specificity was enough for them because they followed it the applause we would get from prisoners who understood being trapped you know what i mean and then by the time we took it to the public proper to the quote-unquote regular audience all those experiences were in my performance and it was hamlet is the only role that i've ever finished the run of that i was sad it was over that I, I it's the only role I've ever wanted to return to that it was unfinished business because there was so much in the character. So I drank my hand at watching it. And when I played it, I was ready for it. Like I've never been ready for anything before. I think I was off book by the time we started day one, oh, I... you know, because mm-hmm. I was, yeah, I, I was, it was when I, when I got the go ahead, when Oscar used to to say the go ahead, I was like, okay, I've actually been waiting for this for most of my life, you know? So it was just a
1: joy. It's kind of the entirety of the human experience it is. journey.
0: And also the entirety for the artist's experience. Right. That's what's weird, that the performer yeah. he gives a speech about how to act. So are you doing that when you 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 tell them suit the action to the word? The word, are you doing that? Uh it, it just it's just like layers upon layers. And then I, I even now I did it in 2016. Even now you know, seven years later, I'm sitting there and going, oh, damn it. That's how that one. you know what I mean? It still it still comes to me. You're just sitting there randomly for no reason. You just go, oh, yeah. Mm, okay.
1: So you said you had a Richard Burton story.
0: Yes. When I was 10, I was living in Ethiopia and uh, Addis Ababa. My parents worked for the United Nations and there was terrible television. So really, we lived off uh, this black market of exchanging uh, VHS tapes <laughs> and watching movies that people recorded and stuff. That's how you, that's how you did it. And uh, one of the movies that arrived in our home was Beckett with Richard Burton and Peter O'Toole, the movie, Jean, Jean Anouis, um, And I was obsessed. I was 10 and I was obsessed. With this film. I watched it so much so that the tape, you know, when it thinned out and started shaking, it started doing that because I watched it. It drove my younger sister nuts. She was like, why are we watching this instead of your 10? You know, what's the deal with this period drama and what? a?" So, anyway, I was obsessed with because I loved Richard Burton and I realized I loved the chemistry with him and Pete O'Toole and I loved the grandness of the performances. I loved the still fires of Richard Burton and the flamboyance of Pete O'Toole. So, fast forward 10 years later, I'm at Yale and I've decided that, okay, it's time. I, I need to get into theater here while I'm here. And I'm walking across, cross campus or something. And I see a poster for Beckett. There's a poster of the play. And I go and I, I the girl I was dating at the time. said I just saw this and I used to watch the movie and I love, and she goes, oh, my friend is the director of that. And he is looking for his leads. You got to go audition. I said, <laughs> And I was like, okay. So I said, I'm going to go audition. And I'm going in for the Henry role, the P22 role, because it's more flamboyant. I went in for the audition, and Owen Hughes looked at me and just had me read Just Beckett, Just Beckett. All the actors were coming and do Beckett. And then he offered me the role of Beckett. And it was that opening night of that show that James DePaul came to see that made him offer me a scholarship to drama school.
1: And that's the true
0: story that's a true story and the only reason I went for that audition is because of that film uh, I used to watch it in Ethiopia as a 10 year old
2: yeah I I always tell people that the the biggest enemy to artistic endeavor is a good job yeah I <laughs>
0: can you imagine it's just especially the jobs you get off without it was my former professor economics professor he'd become a consultant at uh, McKinsey I hadn't even applied to McKinsey (laughs) and I got a phone call from McKinsey one day like it was a couple of weeks after James offered me the scholarship one day saying basically saying just fill out your form and we'll leave leave the rest to us and I remember just sitting there thinking I'm about to turn down like a hundred, whatever it was to go, you know, get like so much money, my New York apartment and everything to go to drama school. And I just remember taking a moment and then going to the woman on the phone. Yeah, thank you, ma'am, but I'm going to drama school. And there was a long pause on the phone. <laughs> and she just and she just went, and then, no, but it was so sweet. After pause, she just went, you know what? Good for you, sir. I remember her saying that and chills. Wow. You know what I mean? She said that. I was like, Wow. She said, "You know what?" And she what her voice is if she didn't want the rest of HR to hear something. She was like, "You know what? Good for you, sir." I was like, "Oh, that's a that's a sign out of nowhere." You know are you,
1: Are you still in touch with your econ buddies, uh, friends from Yale?
0: Oh yeah, a lot of my friends that went. And, I'm still in touch with them, and they've all they've all. You know, it's weird when I chose to go into acting. None of them were like, "You're crazy, you're nuts." Mm-hmm. They probably were like thinking it, but what they said to me was like, "Go for, of course, of course, you're gonna to want to be an actor, Chuck. <laughs> Go for it." They would not. They would travel to London to see my shows. You wow. know, from anything from you know a, a French show and behind a pub to like something at the National. Travel they travelled with it to support. And now, do you know what's weird? We we started this with Guardians. We're finishing with Guardians. The fact they're taking their kids to Guardians and they're saying that's Uncle Chuck, that's our show. <laughs> do you know <laughs> what I mean? There's such a what. That's been the biggest, because when you're in it, guys, it's very hard. When people ask you how does it feel and all that, it feels like it feels because you're in the middle of it and you're jobbing, you're working, you're looking towards the next job, you're dealing with a strike. <laughs> you know, you're yeah. also, there's the reality of it. But when it's the others, whether it be my family or my friends, and they talk about their kids going, or they send me a picture of them at the theater in front of a poster with their kids, and then it then it makes sense. Then it makes sense, the bigness of it. Other than that, it's it's you're in it. You're too much in it to know it. But it's it's the effect it has on those you love that really is the real litmus test for this for me.
1: This went super I long, knew. and, and uh, you gave us so much of your time.
0: But really, I mean, on my end, I, I had such a great time playing. It. it was a learning curve performance-wise for me. And like I said, I, I have a feeling... The specifics of that is, it's got a bleeding to my work in general but it was just such a joy and and never never even hesitate to pick up the phone because i loved working with you guys the whole team you know it was a joy great
2: well you were fantastic and i'm
0: glad the podcast is going down so well that people are loving it yeah, five-star yeah. reviews everywhere so i'm so so yeah we're
2: we're number one in sri lanka so, you know, there you go. Hey, we're number one <laughs> we're worldwide. worldwide. <laughs> we're number one. It is it is a bit mysterious though how you put something, you know, good out there and it just finds its way. I mean, I, I it's it's been yeah, it's been astonishing to me how this has just bled everywhere. So it's uh yeah
0: fascinating. And people really responding to it and and seeing seeing the characters they see is they talk about them like they've seen them, and that's that's a real bonus to me and stuff and um no it's beautiful it's really beautiful and i'm very very proud of being part of it i'm really glad for you guys because one thing you kept saying was that like, we don't know how this is gonna work we don't, you know <laughs> we don't know how it's gonna go down well we're finding
1: out i can't resist one last yeah. thing uh, did you do yeah. have you done improv
0: no improv terrifies me it's literally terrifies the hell out of me nothing oh, scares me that. more than when in rehearsal Someone says to you, the director says, okay, just improv this scene. And the weird thing about it is I know it would be great for me to do it. I know I should do it. I know I should put myself there, but I have never done it officially. I I have the biggest stand-up comedians and improv artists for me are like the crazy ones, the ones that are doing (laughs) the uber stunts. Do you know what I mean? For me as a performer. Then
1: then I'm not going to ask you to jump back into your Peter Towers costume and give us an outro scolding
0: oh god Peter, how would Peter Towers say well I'm, I'm, I'm glad that I was able to like uh, relate to this sort of lowbrow comedy but congratulations <laughs> on your part I'm glad that the masses are enjoying this and I wouldn't exactly say it defines my future but having tasted of your <laughs> trivial you know <laughs> like talents it's fun <laughs> to have at least made you feel a bit more important in this world for a very small time
1: how's that
2: that was pretty darn good. damn good. I think
1: you can do improv and you've just been keeping it hidden from the world. That's where you're headed next. Watch out, Upright Citizens Brigade. <laughs> <laughs> Take care,
0: guys. And I'm still looking forward to that drink in New York at some point.
1: Oh, yeah. heck, it's happening.
0: We'll do Let's it. Let's do it. You've been
1: listening to In the Cards bonus content series. You can learn more about In the Cards at Next Chapter Podcast website, ncpodcasts.com. That's N as in next, C as in chapter, podcast with an S at the end, dot com, where you can find other series like the Play On Podcast series and interviews, along with talk podcasts like The 500, Indecent with Kiki Anderson, Beef with Bridget Todd, and a whole lot more. I'd love to like to thank Jeremiah Tittle, the founder of Next Chapter Podcast, and our producer, Pete Musto. Our audio engineer, editor, and sound designer is Justin Cortese. Be sure to subscribe to Next Chapter Podcast for updates on all the latest content, and don't forget to rate and review our shows and subscribe. It really, really helps. I'm Michael Goodfriend with Kevin Henderson, and I look forward to sharing more incredible works in the next chapter podcast bonus content series with you along with lots of enlightening interviews at next chapter podcasts
0: next chapter podcasts